Today's episode is sponsored by Print Ninja. Ready to bring your board game to life? Print Ninja makes offset printing simple and affordable. Check out their new playable board game sample pack to get started planning your project or quote your game instantly with their unique budgetary calculator. And check out their interviews with board game creators for inspiration and advice. Visit printninja.com slash design lab to get started. And if you mention the board game design lab when you save a quote or reach out with questions, you'll receive a free 5% print overrun with your order. That's printninja.com slash design lab. Now, just on a quick personal note, Print Ninja actually sent me their board game sample pack, and I gotta be honest, it was pretty awesome. The quality was great. The miniatures, the cards, the boards, everything about it was just super high quality, super top notch. And so Print Ninja might be a good option for you if you're looking into uh, publishing your own game. I know they do a lot of stuff for you. And so if you're getting started and you're not entirely sure as far as, you know, all the shipping and all the craziness that goes into the business side of things, they might be a really good company to check out. And so head on over to their website and see if it's right for you. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're getting miniature. We're talking about all things mini. We're talking about the process. We're talking about how you make these things, what the costs involved are like, all of the ins and outs of miniatures. And we're talking to John DeCampos from Terrible Games. John, welcome to the show. Gabe, man, I am so stoked to be here, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really excited to be talking to you. You got a really interesting game called Token Terror's Battlegrounds that you've been working on for quite some time. It's got just tons of these amazing little miniatures, these like little one inch tall little dudes. And uh, it's just a really cool little game you got there. And so I'm just kind of pumped to understand the process, all the different uh, things that you went through to get this game to come to life. We were talking about right before the uh, I hit record about it's like you know kind of like a Pinocchio thing where you're trying to trying to get this game to become a real boy and it just you know it's been lots of starts and stops but uh, you're figuring it out and at this point the game is on Kickstarter and so that's awesome that it's actually coming to fruition. But I want to understand the process a little bit better. But before we get into those things, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Um, so I'm uh, John DeCampos. Uh... I'm a uh, freelance illustrator for my professional life. I live in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm also a working musician and a um, uh, artistic council member and co-founder of the Baltimore Rock Opera Society, which is a cool little um, arts organization here in Baltimore with all volunteer forces that create all original rock operas. It's a blast. Um, and uh, the way I got into game design was like pretty much everybody else, you know, <laughs> like every everybody's going to mention uh, everybody mentions, uh, you know, Sellers of Catan is really like their awakening when it comes to the hobby. And it's the same for me. Um, you know, I played, uh, you know, a lot of video games growing up and the standards in board gaming with your Monopoly Battleship, uh, you know, Connect Four, etc. Um but a little bit after like the big tabletop boom that happened when Catan was really like raising a lot of eyebrows, uh, a buddy of mine can convince me to start playing Dungeons and Dragons. I ended up being um, a DM for about a year and then they eventually won me over to playing Magic the Gathering, which kind of just like took over my whole deal for a while. Um, and, you know, inevitably ended up being what 
inspired me and my friends to to work on token tears and develop this idea around minis that were dice sized, durable, compact. Um, I had a I had a sculptor recently sort of refer to them as like totem style, which I think is really apt. And and yeah, start this start this game company. Just go down the the road of becoming an an, an independent uh independent publisher. Yeah, very cool. And let's get into talking about miniatures. First of all, let's get a good little working definition. What exactly is a miniature? Well, a mini is a small little three dimensional uh, representation of a creature or a character in your game. Um, whether you're playing, you know. A, uh, an RPG action adventure or a strategic battle game like um, 40K or Warhammer, that kind of thing. Um, you'll usually have a character, sometimes fully painted, sometimes not. Flat grays are pretty common also. That's attached to like a circular or hexagonal base, and they're fully rendered in three dimensions and a lot of times very, very detailed. Uh, they have cool weapons and capes and helmets and tentacles and all, you know, sky's the limit. And uh, very recently, actually, uh, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of conversations in the board game design circles about just the power of minis as far as a, um, a selling point for a lot of games. I think it really helps players sort of anchor themselves in the place of the character and sort of buy in a little bit more. Uh, not to knock, you know, the tried and true meeple. Uh, there's always going to be a place for those. But the, there's something about minis. I can kind of see it. It just sort of like unlocks the imagination a little bit more, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's just something about the detail of it and the, the size of it, especially with a lot of games coming through Kickstarter nowadays. You'll have these, you know, 10-inch, 12-inch, even the Simon recently, they had that giant Cthulhu. It's hard to yeah. even call it a miniature because it's like, you know, <laughs> two feet tall. A friend of mine got it in the mail over the summer last year. And it was just like, this is absolutely ridiculous. We have gone beyond what anyone could have ever anticipated as far as miniatures and miniature designs and whatnot. And so let's actually talk a little bit more about that. Why do you think so many people are drawn to it? You mentioned, you know, having a character and being able to kind of relate to it as your, your little character on the map or on the board or whatever. But why else? Why has Kickstarter just seen this incredible renaissance of not just games, but especially miniature games with, I mean, so many million dollar projects, you know, it seems like there's another million dollar project every single month, just amazing miniatures, beautiful sculpts and things like that. Why do you think that is other than, you know, just having a really cool character? Um, you know, I really think it kind of knocks on the door of nostalgia a little bit. I mean, everybody who's really big into the tabletop gaming hobby, or even people who are just a notch above a casual player, uh, having a bunch of ministers is basically parallel to, to collecting a bunch of toys and having little adventures with your toys when you're a kid. I mean, it's the same experience, you know, you're, you're assigning stats, you have all these asymmetrical, uh, you know, mechanisms that are giving you an edge in the game as a specific, as a specific character. Um, and you're utilizing that character as sort of a, uh, an avatar for yourself in the game and executing things successfully or failing, you know, but you have like this little buddy that's like going on this adventure with you. Um, and I also think, you know, speaking as a visual artist and somebody, you know, who does stuff in music as well, like it's just like with everything else you do with the artistic design when it comes to a tabletop game. I think that minis just they feel a little bit more uh, extravagant, I guess, like just sort of like, uh, you know, fudge on the Sunday kind of thing. Um, it you know, there's a little bit more forethought and care that goes into designing a mini the same way you design a really beautiful box or a really beautiful board. These minis are just sort of like, I really am invested in the vision for this game so much so that like, I will give you 60 miniatures with it because that's what it requires. It needs it to be, that's what it needs to like take it, you know, over the, over the finish line. 
Right. The visual side of this thing cannot be overstated. I mean, just when you go to a campaign page, a Kickstarter campaign page, and you see, first of all, the number, it says 150 miniatures in this box. Like, wow, okay, that automatically jumps out at you. But then you just start seeing the level of detail and the size and just the amazing monsters or heroes or whatever it is uh, there on the page. It just calls out to you visually. And, you know, as visual creatures, as humans, we are drawn into these kinds of things a lot more than we would be, like you said, to meeples or especially to cubes or even in the case of like little cardboard cutouts of the characters or whatnot. We are just so drawn to the visual side of things. And then like I, I completely agree with the toy aspect too. It just feel these, these, they seem like toys. You know, you get them in the mail and you pull them out the box and you kind of play around with them, not even play the game, you know, just enjoy the miniatures there on the table. And then also I think it's a really cool juxtaposition of hobbies that miniatures come into where, okay, there's a lot of people out there you know, they like games well enough, but they really like to paint. They like to paint miniatures. They like to have this collection of really cool stuff. They like to, you know, pimp out their games with, with painted stuff. And so you, you got that crossover of a hobby. And then you also have the crossover hobby of people who just want more cool miniatures for their D&D game. They don't care at all about your game. Your game, ah, whatever. It's nowhere near <laughs> as good as D&D. I just really like that monster that's three feet tall. I'm going to add him to my next campaign, you know, or that, that group of heroes that, you know, my players would love to run around the, the world as these heroes, and they don't even care about your board game. So I think miniatures really have this cool crossover effect with a lot of other things going on. And so have you found that in your own experience, especially with your little dudes? And I know one of your selling points is that you can use these guys for Magic the Gathering and other things. So tell me about that experience. Yeah, so um, you actually hit the nail on the head a couple times um, there. Uh, so really the at the crux of what Token Terrors are about is that we wanted not really just a minis game because it didn't start out as a minis game. Um, it started out as a gaming accessory. Um, I had uh, I had a roommate who collected these little grocery store toys called homies. Um, and there was nothing really very remarkable about them, except that they were collectible and that they had different. They all looked different. Right. Um, and then I also had another roommate who had give, I had inherited a big bag of dice and other, you know, gaming accessories, you know, like beads and, uh, you know, cardboard chits and whatnot. And inside of there, he had all these little like rubber monkey like eraser pencil topper things that just like sat, they had these little fezzes on. They were really just these, these weird little monkey guys. And I had started integrating them into use for token creatures in magic, the gathering. I'm a big fan of just flooding the battlefield with a ton of little one, ones and two, two creatures, and then waiting until I have a giant army and then just flooding my enemy. Um, and me and my, my best friend and now a uh, co-designer, um, Lucas Gerace, we're playing a game. We were both doing the same mechanic and we just had a flooded table state full of stuff. And I started using one of the monkeys as a token creature. I was like, why doesn't that exist? Like, why isn't there a cool little dude for magic? Um, and we both started spitballing on the idea and, and a name popped up and um, we realized that, like, yeah, they can do all that stuff. They can look cool. They're collectible. Uh, you can, I've actually had kids walk up to our tables at playtesting events or when we're tabling at like a comic convention or something and just start picking them up and like scooting them around the table and jumping and doing voices. And um, we wanted something that was like dice-like because one thing that all other gaming minis seem to share is that they have arms akimbo with giant spears and capes and, you know, all these bases attached to the legs. So when you toss them in a bag, they get kind of tangled up and jumbled. And uh, I've seen, you know, uh, RPG players who have like a literal tackle box with like foam padding bottoms so they can sort of like protect their uh, their skillfully painted minis and they're, they're toting them around. We want something that was just like a little bit more like grab and go. And yeah, they fit in a one inch footprint for Dungeons Dungeon Dragons or Pathfinder. Um, they work for Magic the Gathering as token creatures. And like, yeah, it's it's 
it's been sort of a weird uh, thing thinking about how to market these things properly because they're they're just trying to do a lot. <laughs> um, but yeah, did I did I answer your question? I think I did. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You're good, and it's kind of you 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 hit me a little close to home there. I'm like right to my left, right here. I have a very large what's supposed to be used for sewing materials like yarn and thread and everything, but it's full of miniatures just to protect them so yeah. they don't get jacked up when I'm going to uh, RPG club every single yeah. week. And so it's just part of it. And so you know, and I remember back in the day when my friends and I were playing Magic the Gathering, we would just use pennies. You know, back when pennies were more of a thing, uh, we would use pennies as the one one monsters that would come out. You know, as part of our decks. And so it's it would have been so much cooler to have these little things like you have and, and actually have like little goblins or little elves or whatever it is out there on the on the table to use as representation. So I, I think you've got a really cool idea uh, and I really hope it does well. I think, you know, if people can realize the, the different things, like you're saying, it's a little bit hard because it's kind of hard to be clear about, well, what is this? Uh, what's well, it's seven different things. And so that's going to be a challenge, but I'm excited to see uh, where this thing goes and, and hopefully you'll be able to make just tons and tons of these things. And actually, actually let's get into the, the heart of this conversation, talking about making these you know miniatures tell me first of all what are some of the different processes like what are the different ways that miniatures can be made like we were talking about before the uh, the episode started you know there's lots of different things you can do in the factory as far as uh, different plates and different styles and things like that so walk me through just some of the different types you've run into in your research and things you've done as far as like how these miniatures can be made sure so um yeah, I this is kind of a big question for me because I was completely ignorant to the pre-existing, you know, um groups on Facebook like Board Game Design Lab group uh and you know Kickstarter best practices and all these other communities. Obviously I am aware of Board Game Geek, but uh really plugging into that community was a little tough for me. Um and I kind of had a hard go of it on Reddit also. Um but even but before all that, um I I just had it in my head that like we were going to just do this. It, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't really do any like research. I just started asking around. I, I typed up a, a business proposal and um, the different ways you can do it are vast. I think that the, the main way that most people do it in the industry is you come up with a general idea for a character, whether that's a, what we do is a 360 degree, uh, a 360 degree design sketch. It shows all sides of the token. And if it has any special features or anything, you know, I include that stuff. Um, and then you have somebody render that into an STL file and that can be used to do a couple different things. Uh, most notably you can 3d print them if you have a home 3d printer and that can be done with either, uh, you know, plastic filament, or if you have a resin, 3d printer which is a, a much much more expensive but um the quality of the 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 detail and the quality of the print is is much higher um once you have those you know in the case of our game we really needed them uh for quite a quite a bit of reasons uh but mostly because there's facing involved um and there's also a randomization step so like we had to actually have physical prototypes and um we thought about a bunch of different ways to manufacture them so the first way I tried to do it is actually source them in the United States. Um, I am, uh, I've been involved in the video game music scene for a little over a decade. Um, so I was in a band called Entertainment System and another one called uh, Rare Candy uh, that covered video game music. And a big yearly event for that community is this thing called MAGFest that happens in the winter um, here in National Harbor, uh, Maryland. Um, and they had given out these little plastic... Like it was fake money. It was like fun bucks for Magfest, but it was all these di different like characters and like a rupee from Legend of Zelda and a little donut guy. 
and I started asking around, like, who made these? Like, there were ten, there were thousands of these things distributed. There's twenty thousand people at this convention. Like, who produced this? Because I'm trying to make toys, and I want to get in touch with this person. So I got in touch with the dude, and he was like, "Yeah, I can do it." Um, and I, in my head, I was just like, "Proof of concept time." You know, I just want to have something in my hand that I can show people to be like, "We can make this happen." We just need to do six other sculpts or five other sculpts in addition to this one, and with your help, we can get it done. So I talked to him and he quoted me at $3,000 to make a two plate mold of our goblin, which was like our flagship guy. Uh, he's like the super Mario of token terrors. Uh, <laughs> and um, over about a year and a half, the whole thing just kind of fell apart. Uh, there were some problems with facilities in the U S I, I also went to like a technical convention and spoke to a bunch of injection molding people about just general costs. I showed them some prototypes and they were like, yeah, unless you're ordering like a hundred thousand of these, there's no way it's going to be affordable. Um, so we started, you know, exploring some different things. So, um, we, we did the home printer thing. We got a filament printer and just the technical side of it was kind of a speed bump. Uh, we weren't really able to get anything that we were happy with. I have a friend of mine named Chuck who, um, is a machine designer and he had actually just recently purchased like a $3,500 top of the line home resin printer and was like, Hey, I know you're working on that game. Um, if you ever need anything printed, let me know. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. Like a lot. <laughs> so, um, I hired him and he's actually been doing all, he's probably done six different print jobs of full iterations of entire collections of, of the token terror season one. I think we've done like four different versions that, and I can't speak enough to how helpful it is to actually hold the prototypes in your hand. If you're doing a game with minis, which I know is like kind of a tough uh, hurdle to get over. Um, but once we had the prototypes, we were like, okay, so now what can we do? So um, I had been looking around at like the art toy scene. There's like a, there's a pretty active community on Instagram of artists who make bootleg toys and custom toys. And what they do is they do a relief mold using a uh, two-part silicone. And I even went down to the National Aquarium in Baltimore and talked to some fabricators down there who do all of these faux like coral formations and different things that are inside of the aquarium, like sets, if you will. Um, and they use silicon molding for their stuff so they can like make a bunch of like fake silicon or not silicon, like resin muscles, you know, to put on the side of a piece of coral. So they showed us like their, their pressurizer, uh, chamber and they talked that I got a quote from my friend Zach about how to do how much silicone we were going to have to buy. And we were talking about how we were going to lay the tokens down into this big flat sheet so that we could pour the silicon mold and then do this relief. And, you know, I just, I wasn't really thinking about like how much we wanted to scale the product at that point. We were still just looking at them as, as mostly being magic tokens at that, at that juncture. So like, you know, there, there was that side of it. And then uh, once everything kind of fell out, once the floor fell out from our U S provider, where basically what happened with him was um, the three K went towards the two plate steel. He had machined most of it. Uh, it took him almost a year to actually get everything machined because the steel was taking a long time to ship. And then he was bouncing around from different facilities. He's a, he's a small run guy who does like boutique, uh, toy design. So, um, once his, like his tried and true facility who can do smaller runs for not as much money fell through, he needed an additional thousand dollars in order to get into a facility to run a thousand goblins for us. He would only have a 12 hour window to do it. If anything went wrong, we might lose all of our money. And we just decided like we couldn't do it. So then I went to uh, Unpub in College Park, and I started talking with this guy named Dave Snyder, who was there on behalf of Gameland Games, um, and also his own company. I think it's called Javelin Dice. He does metal dice. Um, and I showed him our prototypes. I had them in my pocket, and he was like, yeah, we'll do a 500 minimum order quantity. 
on something with miniatures and he had the Ninja Turtles game that they had recently manufactured right next to him. I looked at the components and thought, absolutely, these are up to my uh, standards. And once we found out we had a 500 minimum order quantity, which previously we had heard a thousand from a couple people, uh, you know, that just as a first time funder, we knew that asking for north of $20,000 was going to be a pretty tough ask. At 500 minimum order quantity, we thought, you know, barrier for entry for us to fund is somewhere between 12 and, and 15. Of course, it's 15. Um, and once we started talking to them, we got a quote back. And the amount less that it was was jaw-dropping. Um, you know, sourcing the U.S. had everything worked out with the person we were working with previously. They would have run us a little over a dollar each, which would have kind of like sidestep one of our big selling points for token tears is that they're inexpensive we want to be able to sell six of them for like eight to ten dollars on kickstarter they're running for eight but when they go to retail they're going to go for ten and even even then that's like a dollar and change per mini you know normally minis cost you know between two and three sometimes more um so the u.s sourcing was just kind of out of the question and then we're hearing from from china you know between 20 and at most 40 cents per from per miniature it was just like a uh you know, just a huge moment. We were like, okay, this, like, there's light at the end of this tunnel, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Okay. A lot to unpack there, but let me, let me, first of all, just say, if someone is thinking about sourcing a miniature print run or wanting to do it here in the States, what would you tell them? Just give me like the too long, didn't read. What would you tell them? Um, don't do that. <laughs> don't, I mean, unless, unless you are that person, like, the only way I think that we would have been able to make that work is if I was actually a sculptor and mm. um, I was able to basically DIY the process myself. I, I, it's just all of the, all the guys I talked to about manufacturing in the U S they talked about the, I guess the bread and butter of their business is just huge numbers. Yeah. Like there's so much, there's so much design and, um, and pre-production that goes into getting these steel molds, um, you know, uh, carved out and, and machined that you just you have to be placing a huge order with a US based manufacturer like that. And I can't really speak to exactly how it works in China, but I would just think that they have such a long track record of doing mass toy production that maybe, you know, um the inner workings and the workflow is just a little bit more second nature for toy for toy making. So, you know, for whatever reason it's it's just a lot less expensive. Um but yeah, that was just like an eye opener right there. Gotcha. But let's unpack a few more of the things that you were talking about. You mentioned different, uh, basically substances or different uh, materials that these things can be made of. I think you mentioned silicone. There's also different plastics. Tell me about just what you know, your knowledge of the different kinds of materials, maybe some pros and cons for each one. Um, yeah. So the most common material that I've come across is going to be PVC and there's different levels of rigidity that you can get out of, uh, out of PVC, uh, molded miniatures. Um, you know, typically the, I guess the stuff I would compare it to is like, I don't know if you remember this, but um, in the Ninja Turtles toys, sometimes the main character would come with like a little side character, like uh, the wingnut and screw loose, like screw loose was like a little mosquito that yeah. came with this like giant bat. Yeah. So it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a rigid plastic, but it's like semi pliable, which is how I think, you know, you can get these, these single seam molds, which are just two plate molds that come together and they inject plastic into the middle and they rip them apart. And even though, there's a couple protruding parts that would be kind of uh, tough to extrude because this, the plastic uh, cures very quickly. 
and they're pulling it out while it's while it's solid but still sort of warm and pliable they can get them out without uh breaking the stuff i mean the more rigid you go the tougher it is as far as capturing detail um you can do resin which is uh that that is liquid or not like it's like a thick sort of liquid but um you know that's more gravity based it needs time to set i don't know about injecting resin i'm not sure how that works um but i know that resin miniature making when you're using silicon molding for like the art toys or the or the knockoff toys or you know stuff like that um you have to let all these air bubbles get out and it'll set clear unless you add colorant to it and it's the same thing with pvc all of this stuff there's like a base material that gets heated and injected and then in addition if you want to do mixtures of different colors they actually add plastic colorant um beads to the to the main load that's going to be injected into all the stuff and then you know i i had talked to gameland about them you know I, I stressed to them a lot i was like look the basically the tent pole of our product is these minis like we need them to be injected totally solid like no hollow stuff and i need reassurances about detail and all this other stuff and i asked him how they were able to make it so inexpensive and it's because they're going to do two giant plates they're not going to do one plate or two plates for the goblin and two plates for the elf and two plates for and so on and so on they're going to do one big plate with an entire family of molds um and then what they're going to do is uh there's this i I forget the name of it uh, the lead so the 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 point where the plastic actually injects it's going to go down this little thin tunnel until it hits the actual cavity where the plastic goes in to make the mini um they're going to gate those off and only inject red for the goblins so they're going to gate everything else off and whatever's red is going to get injected with red and then they're going to you know they're going to set all of those aside and then gate off the goblins and then move on to all all the stuff that's being injected in black so all the zombies will get injected in black so all of the different um leads are going to get are going to get gated um and part of the design process for us in order to make them as inexpensive as possible was to make sure that we were designing them with a 50 50 design. So um, you'll see that like, basically like if you try to do like a a shape that would have something catch like overhang, uh, it'll be impossible or very difficult for the molds to separate without breaking the, the actual miniature or the product. So all of our minis are designed so that as you move away from the center of either like the left or right side or the front of the token, it's only going to reduce. It's only it, you'll be able to pull the molds away without anything clipping or getting ripped or torn. So some parts of it are purposefully made like perfectly flat in order to make it so that there's very little resistance when you're when you're taking the product out of the mold. All right. So tell me a little bit more about the colors. Like, is it more expensive to do some colors versus others to have color at all? I mean, is there a reason why almost every miniature game you see has gray versus other colors? Tell me a little bit more about that. Um, you know, I actually hadn't really done a deep dive with the game land quote um, in regards to whether or not it costs extra for colors. I do know that like if we wanted to do translucent uh, minis, they would have to use an alternate material because I don't think PVC can inject um, translucent clear. So I think that would be resin for that. Um, but I'm not 100% sure, but I, I think it would be resin. Um, it seemed to me that mostly the price would jump in the actual mass of the mini. So, you know, our our soldier mini is one of the taller ones. He's got a little bit more heft to him. Um, and I think he runs us about 43 cents per guy. Uh, the flying machines are a little bit more trim and squat, so they run a little bit uh, less expensive. I think they were around 25 or 27 cents, something like that. Gotcha. And now are you paying kind of per weight 
or, or like per material, like per ounce, basically of the plastic going in? How's it, how's it work? Um, it kind of seems that way, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of speculating here, just judging on what I saw with the quote from Gameland, but, uh, basically, you know, so there's a 6,000, there's a $6,000 upfront cost just for the tooling. Like before you even get into what it costs to put plastic into the mold, just making the mold is between 6,000 and 6,500. So first you got to get over that hump and then you're meeting a 500 minimum order quantity. And obviously like with all things that you're getting in the tabletop space as a publisher, the more, the more you sell or the more you purchase up front, you can knock those costs down a little bit. So all the costs do scale on these two. Uh, there's not a static price on these. If we sell a thousand or, you know, if we order a thousand from them versus 500, we'll get a little bit of a price break on the cost of each individual mini, but that $6,000 ish upfront cost for mold making, that's not going anywhere. It doesn't matter. You know, doesn't matter how many copies we sell. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. But it makes a lot of sense just to make one giant plate as opposed to making, you know, expensive individual plates like the uh, like the guy that was just going to do the goblins. It makes a lot more sense. Just have one big piece of metal, or I guess two big pieces of metal, as opposed to a bunch of smaller ones instead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's walk back just a little bit uh, in, in the process. Tell me more about kind of the design. So you mentioned that you kind of have a 360 drawing at first. Now, tell me more about that. Like, do you reach out and find a, a miniatures designer a, a, a person that specifically draws these kinds of things and it kind of starts off on paper or tell me more well sure yeah so um f- for me uh i got really lucky that i ended up getting so passionate and interested in doing indie tabletop design because i am an illustrator so <laughs> i can do all the artwork that we need i don't have to look for quotes or, or source any of that stuff um and i, I feel very privileged because i know a lot of people that for a lot of folks that's a that's a that's a barrier that's a you know something that they have to they have to think about ahead of time and it, and it can cause some logistical issues um so yeah i just uh you know going back to the intended purpose for these before we designed um a battle game around them. Uh, the six creatures that we chose for our season one offering are all dudes that you see a lot in Magic the Gathering. Elves, goblins, uh, soldiers, zombies, uh, wyverns in our case, but they're supposed to be drakes, basically, and uh, flying machines, which, you know, in Magic are referred to as thopters. Uh, we just decided to sort of, like, consciously not use the same nomenclature for our creatures versus Magic because I feel like it's pretty apparent what their use is for, but we just didn't want to, like, I don't know, be overzealous about like branding that way, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you also don't want to open yourself up to being sued for anything. It's, it's like back yeah. in the day, I think D and D got sued because they used the word Hobbit and uh, that's, that's a copyrighted term. You got to use hash. Sure. Now. sure. And so you just want to be smart there. Yeah. And, and then, and this one, you know, obviously like calling our, our, uh, our, our token meant for a Drake, a Wyvern, you know, they don't, I don't think that they have any ownership rights over, you know, goblins, elves and, and whatnot. Um, if we got into more specific things like uh, magic IP, like slivers or um, sapperlings, then, you know, we'd have to we have to be a little bit more creative with, with what we call them. Yeah. OK, so you did all the designing on paper. Right. And then yeah. did you reach out to a sculptor to then take that drawing and then or I guess it does it go into 3D goes in 3D software first and then to a sculptor. To like, tell me more. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for bringing me back. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was really weird. Uh, not weird. Awesome. It was super awesome. Um, me and my buddy Lucas, we played this game with all these tokens. And then I was like, okay, well, we're going to start a thing. We're going to, it's going to be called Token Terrors and we're going to do it. And I think later that week, I went onto Facebook and I was like, who do I know who knows how to render stuff in, in 3D? 
just went to Facebook and was like, who renders stuff in 3D? And there was a guy who I met through the Rock Opera Society. Uh, his name is Tim Brocious. He's now uh, my partner in Terrible Games. And he was like, I do. I can render stuff in 3D. I, I use a program called 3DS Max. Um, and he had done it for animating sort of like video game assets, you know, doing environments uh, when doing like green screen and things like that. And he actually has, um, he had produced three sculpts in 3DX Max, but that program is actually meant for animating things. So you're going to give it some locomotion. It's going to, you know, so the arms were separated, the legs were, you know, all like actually like crouching down. It was, it was a little bit more articulated as far as like the body language of the sculpts. Um, and then I started seeing that ZBrush seemed more of a common like industry standard. Um, and I asked him to look into it because, you know, the initial intention was that these should be carved from like a, a block. Like I wanted them to have a dice like shape so that they'd be very durable and they wouldn't catch on stuff. And he kind of went back to the drawing board and my man freaking learned how to do stuff in ZBrush just to support this project. And he was actually the first person to jump on to this with me. Um, he had purchased our home 3D printer and stuff. And like, yeah, he learned how to sculpt stuff in in, um, in ZBrush. And now like we have a working like design studio. It's crazy. <laughs> I can, I send him a three to uh, a 360 degree design sketch. He sends me his first pass at the sculpt. I look at it. I pop that into uh, GIMP. Um, and for those who aren't familiar, GIMP is an open source uh, Photoshop um Photoshop-like program that does all the stuff that Photoshop does, but it's just completely free um, for anybody who's self-publishing. Definitely look into it if you haven't already. Um, and I, I overlay my notes and I actually type them down and give him, you know, feedback about what I'd like to see from the sculpt and talk about comparative head sizes. And, you know, this fish should be clenched and maybe like move this ankle back so it makes a little bit more anatomical sense and ruffle the cape like this and the hair should look like this. And then he sends back another draft and... Um, Eventually, we land on something that we're both happy with, and we send it to final. I send the STLs over to Chuck, who now he recently moved to Portland. Um, but when he was living in Baltimore, uh, I would just drive to his house. He would give me the prototype resin prints, and then I would compare them to the rest the the, uh, the rest of the season and look at them and say, okay, these all are comparing. They look like they're from the same family of things. This is all great. Gotcha. Now, I've heard some you know games and, and companies use a sculptor. They'll reach out and hire a sculptor to kind of like sculpt the actual miniature out of, I don't, even, I don't know if it's clay or whatever. It doesn't sound like you're doing that. And so what do you know about that process? Um, you have to have a very specific skill set to do it. I actually, I tried my hand at it. Um, from what I've seen, you basically build like a wire armature that's uh, roughly two thirds larger than what you're actually going to scale it down to uh, so that you can get more detail in. Um, and from what I've seen from the process, basically you just iterate, iterate, iterate until you get to the thing that you, that you're looking for. And, and, you know, I think that, um, actual like tactile sculpting with your hands and like uh clay or, um, I forget the, there's like an epoxy, uh, not epoxy. There's a, there's a two part clay mixture that a lot of people use. I tried to do this with, uh, with doing like independent toy making also the same thing with the silicone, uh, the silicone molding. And just do short run toys of like really cool monsters and stuff. Um, it's a labor intensive process. And, you know, speaking as a, as an, as a visual artist myself, like I, I bought the tools. I tried to do it. It's, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, you would really need to go into some formal training if you were going to sculpt things by hand. Yeah. Now what's the advantage of hiring somebody to do that though? Is it more detail or what? Um, I think, I think it's a question of feel, you know, uh, traditional sculptors i think sort of bring something different to the table although you know i mean i i think that that sort of like calls back to the to sort of the the question of like what's the difference between digital art and um you know traditional media art there's 
don't know. There's something about um, like the non-corrective nature of doing things uh, with your hands, like on a piece of paper or with a piece of clay versus a computer uh, where you have infinite uh, amount of edits. You can always just, you know, undo, 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 and, you know, resize something and smooth something out. And you just have so much versatility that you sort of end up with something that like seems more formulated because it's so clean. You know, I think if you were looking for a specific old school feel, uh, hiring like, um, you know, a traditional sculptor would definitely be a good way to go. But um, the same thing with uh, doing illustration work for board games. I would imagine there's a pretty hefty price tag um, attached to something like that. Okay, so the next step in the process, do you then send it off to the manufacturer to make the plates, right? Are you sending them, is that, first of all, is that the next step? Yeah, so once once you've like done all your prototyping and you've looked at your family of minis and gone, yes, all of these guys look cool and they all work together and I like this, um, you send the STL files to the manufacturer. And then in our case, we're going to have to put down a full amount of the uh, plate molding deposit. So all of that $6,000 needs to get delivered and then they're going to get to work. Okay, cool. But they just need the file. Like you don't have to yep. send them the actual 3D printed or anything like that. Okay. I am going to do that actually. They didn't okay. ask for it, but I'm going to do that. Um, just for a, a comparison sake? Yeah. I'm going to send them the prototypes that we've been using in playtesting, the stuff that we've all fallen in love with that we're really happy with. And, and just, you know, basically send them an email or maybe a letter with the package. Just like, this is our expectation. Um, just become familiar with them. Thank you. And, you know, can't wait to see the finals. <laughs> okay, cool. And then, so after that, is there a, a process of like prototyping and then kind of trying it and then sending it to you and saying, Hey, this is what we got. Do you need to make any changes? Now that part, I'm a little unsure of from what I understand. Um, you know, what I what I'm thinking is probably going to happen is they'll be able to do uh, soft pressings. They're not going to go to full production, but they'll be able to, you know, cram some sort of um, material into the mold and show me something that's a facsimile of what the final will probably look like and, and, and look for uh, stated approval on those. Um, you know, I'd be happy to check in with you later and tell you how it goes <laughs> after <laughs> what the drafting process I am. You know, to be honest with you, I'm a little. Um, I'm a little, I've, I've been given every reassurance from Dave and um, Chenny over there at Gameland. They've been very cool. Uh, I don't doubt them at all, um, but I just don't, you know, I don't know what it actually looks like quite yet. All right. And so let me ask you this before they do all, like all of the plates and like all the kind of cost and tooling, all that, do they have any kind of like a, like a quick run through, like a plastic way to do it? Is there a way, almost like a way to test before you spend all that money? on the, the metal side of things, is there a, a cheaper way just to make sure that they have got the exact right molds and things like that? Yeah, there is a way you can do that. So you can actually do a relief mold using an STL file. Well, you, you take the STL file and you build a mold around it in plastic. Um, and then you can do, uh, it's not really an injection, but again, you know, you, you basically, uh, I, it, I would liken it to like doing a thumb sketch almost. Um, uh, in the art world, you just you sort of do a smaller, easier version of a giant piece that you're about to work on, and you can sort of get the over the overarching, like um, you know, big ideas sort of down first. Um, and again, you know, I'll see I'll see what happens. But yeah, I've, I've seen some people who have 3D printed their own molds for stuff out of out of just resin or plastic uh, in order to kind of get an idea of what. And you can mass produce off of those. You just can't do a whole lot because the, those plastic molds are just not up to the wear and tear. 
Right. That's one thing I've, I've seen with some of the uh, Simon games is they, they've talked about how the mold will only last a certain amount of time before it will break down, before you lose quality, before it breaks entirely. And so, you know, that's something they've run into. Of course, they're they're printing, I mean, ridiculous numbers of miniatures, right. like tens and, and tens right. of thousands. And so, you know, it's, it's probably different for them, obviously, than it would be for somebody like us who's just trying to you know do a 500 copy uh, print run or a thousand copy print run. It's a little bit different sure. than, you yeah. know. <laughs> 50,000 copies of zombie side, you know, I'll be, I'll be very happy if I get to announce to whoever cares that we are retiring the family of molds for season one. I would love to be able to say that. <laughs> yeah. That'd be a good problem to have, you know? Yeah, man. All right. So after that, then you go into the manufacturing and, and then it's just off to the races as far as everything going, right? Have we missed anything? Is there any other steps in the process? No. Um, I mean, for us, uh, particularly there's a one little thing that's a little bit different in that, uh, you know, as I'd mentioned before, we're kind of trying to market this as a gaming accessory, which is sort of leads to like the reason the game is called token terrors battlegrounds is because it's token terrors take a beat battlegrounds is sort of like the, the, you know, the setup, the, the, the facet of our product offering that they are existing in for the sake of the board game. Um, so we actually have to develop packaging for a six count. We're calling it a battle block. It's this little candy bar shaped uh, like box with a clear window in the front. So you can see exactly which faction you're buying. You're going to get six token terrors minis inside of each box. So we have some additional uh, like design stuff to do in the way of packaging stuff for retail outside of just the actual board game itself. And that includes what we want to do with our, um, our season one expansion that we're calling primeval power. Um, that's going to have, you know, some larger creatures, like some, some buff, we call them token tyrants. They're like, you know, squad leaders. And then um, there's some token Titans, which are these four space occupying giant monster guys. So, you know, um, with some luck, uh, you know, the campaign, the first one goes good and we can, we can fire back with a small expansion for season one. Um, and then that'll have another, another suite of design that's done for the packaging side of things as well. And we've been talking about doing stuff with maybe blind bags. We don't really know, you know, the sky's the limit when it comes to how to actually try to like get these things into people's hands, you know? Very cool. Yeah. You've got a lot of different products that are coming off of this one product, right? It's not just one game. It's, it's lots of different things and lots of different packaging and things like that. So you've got a lot more going on. Now, let me ask you about as far as packaging goes, you know, the last thing you want to do is go through this entire process, spend all this money, you know, get the game manufactured. And then because it's packaged a certain way inside the box, that the miniatures get broken, you know, things get crushed, they lose their arms and weapons and things like that. And so tell me about packaging, like the actual miniature, because that's another plastics thing. That's another thing you have to create, probably some STL files that, you know, for the miniatures to fit inside these little protective yeah. cartons and things like that. So is that something that the manufacturer helps you out with? Is that something else you have to send to them? Tell me about that. They tried to do that. They sent us a picture of a vacuum formed little tray that would hold each token up inside of the, the, the battle block I just mentioned, uh, where they were all separated and they're all clamped in there real nice. Um, I told them we don't want that because part of the selling point for token tears is that they're super durable. They're inexpensive and they're durable. So when you buy the, when you back the game, when you get the game and it, and it fulfills, uh, when you open the box, the the tokens are actually going to be inside of um, there's two canvas bags called cemetery bags. It's where your dead guys go when they get destroyed in battle. Um, they're just going to be loose. They they're they're dice like in shape and they're going to be made from a durable uh, PVC. So we kind of want that to be part and parcel with the way that we treat them when they're shipped, that they they operate like dice more or less. Uh, so they sh there shouldn't be any breakage or anything like that. They're they they're they're pretty hardy, you know. 
Okay, cool. But Gameland would have done that for you. That would have been part of their service. Though. Yes, absolutely. And you know, that's, that's part of the reason that like another reason that we had to decline that at least for the, the, for, for battlegrounds is because, um, you know, we wanted a package that was very tight. Uh, so our, our box is only five by five by three. If we were to take those considerations into a packaging, uh, a, you know, a protective plastic uh, vacuum form packaging tray for all of the minis, the game is going to come with 36 miniatures inside of it. Our, our box size would balloon. It would, it would be much larger. Yeah, that's a really good point. And then, cause then that really affects your shipping. It affects exactly. everything else and your costs go way, way up. So this actually works out yep. really well that your miniatures are so compact and so durable that you don't have to, you know, protect them nearly as much as a regular set of miniatures like you'd buy off of you know Kickstarter. And so speaking of regular sets of miniatures, a lot of times they'll come on sprues. If I remember right, Games Workshop, which is known mm-hmm. for just incredible quality for miniatures, a lot of times you'll get them on sprues and you have to like clip them out and glue them all together and then you get this really cool thing. But there's a little bit of uh, work involved. Tell me a little bit more about that. Did you look, obviously your your guys are, are smaller and so you don't have, obviously don't have to do that. But uh, did you learn anything in your research as far as sprues and any advantages or disadvantages? Nah, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't really something that actually like came across my desk, uh, to take that into consideration at all. You know, everything is just going to get, um, the, the, I forget what they call them. There's a, there's a term for the little part of plastic that's from the lead, uh, that, you know, getting removed, all that stuff is going to happen in manufacturing. Um, but I didn't, I didn't really see an advantage or disadvantage. I would think that sprues are, or sprue sheets are probably easier because, instead of doing all that vacuum form packaging where every single, you know, nook and cranny is articulated to hold, you know, minis A, B, C through Z, um, you just have a sheet and then another sheet and another sheet. So it's all, it's, it's doing two things. It's, it's keeping your, your, your builds organized because everything is sectioned. And also it's, you know, suspending each of those pieces so they can't move because they're just like hard attached to that sprue sheet. So I I can see the advantages for sure. Uh, You know, for us, we're just, we don't have to, Luckily, we don't have to mess with any of that stuff quite yet. Yeah. And I guess also just from a cost of labor standpoint, you're, you're basically saying, hey, factory, uh, charge me less because we're just going to leave these <laughs> things on the sprues. We're going to make the uh, customer, we're going to make the end consumer deal with it. And actually, it's part of the charm. I know a lot of people that buy you know, game workshops uh, games, they love the process of kind of putting these things together. Some people hate it. And, and obviously, this is not necessarily for you. <laughs> That's kind of thing. But a lot of people, they feel they really enjoy the DIY uh, nature of things. Oh yeah, absolutely. Now another quick question is painting. Uh, we mentioned earlier that a lot of people love miniatures because they love to paint. Is there any anything to think about from a, a material standpoint? Like, are certain plastics easier to paint? Certain plastics harder? Any kind of like film that goes on the outside, or like a, a finishing, uh, like a finish, basically that makes it harder to paint? Anything on, on in that regard? Um, not not to my knowledge. Uh, the, the standard PVC that we're going to be using is basically just like an industry standard. Uh, I don't know the exact like uh, chemical designation for it. I'm sure it has like a, an alphanumeric four digit designation for the particular type of plastic it is. Um, but you know, a non-toxic kind of thing, you don't have to finish it with anything different. Um, I have gotten, so, I, you know, um, in trying to sort of market this as not just a, a board game by itself, but sort of a gaming accessory, I have taken this into different uh, social circles online. And the D&D community was kind of like, these are super cool. They're, uh, you know, the fact that they're not going to be as expensive as regular minis and they don't have a base is all kind of great. But you're shooting yourself in the foot by injecting them in, with a um, with an assigned color because that's going to make them tough to paint. Um, and I can see that. 
you can always just gray primer them and they do have like uh you know model gray primer that'll lay down thin and won't um obscure and or like you know cover too much of the detail of the sculpt um for all of our guys uh chuck had given me different uh different prototypes in in varying colors and at one point they were like this really weird like light sensitive like it had this like weird plastic like sheen it was all black so i had to primer gray them first i don't know they didn't lose much um i really hope people paint them i think we've gotten some painted they look really cool we're actually uh going to be doing a a number of different giveaways with custom painted goblins uh yeah i think the the painting community is great and the diy stuff of minis is you know uh certainly a big part of the market i I don't know if anybody in that community is going to care about what we're doing but it would be cool if they did (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. All right. Let's talk a little bit more about prototyping issues. This is something we talked about briefly before we start recording and how, you know, a lot of times when you're making a prototype to send out to a reviewer or send it out for development, you know, play testing, blind play testing, things like that. It's not as hard if you're just doing a regular board game, regular card game, because you can go through a service like the Game Crafter. And obviously the quality is not going to be quite what it is coming from a full on manufacturing run in China, but it's going to be good enough for people to be able to review and preview and play test and things like that. Uh, a game like this that you're working on, that's not the case. Uh, you you can't really go to the Game Crafter and, and print up a bunch of these little miniatures and that's, that's a, that pros an issue. And so tell me more about your experience with having to go through, I assume, go through Gameland to get some prototypes made, some, you know, just a small run of a few. Like, tell me how that works and maybe some issues you've run into. Sure. So um, the stuff that I've been using for playtesting and sort of showing the game around at different, uh, different gaming gatherings, you know, cons like uh, PAX Unplugged and Unpub and things like that, um, those were all made uh, using the board board games maker uh not not a little bit different than than game crafter they are based out of china but they do micro micro runs as few as one of a thing uh so we got all of our boxes and boards made they did do a run of cards for us which has since been updated um and you know and i had mentioned with uh in regards to the minis i just happened to luck into having a friend who had the machinery needed to do fairly inexpensive they run around three dollars a piece for the for the resin prototypes we have and they are a little brittle Uh, we're gonna have to you know we've included a note for our review copies that say like um hello reviewer these token tears have seen a lot of action and they are battle damaged please excuse (laughs) their uh you know the dings and dents and chipped pieces uh, of these resin prototypes but you know with the finals um yeah, we we're game lane is going to do everything but the miniatures for our review copies or th- that's what they've done is they, you know, they sent us over everything. So, uh, you know, the screen printed cemetery bags, the boards, the cards, everything, you know, um, at the at the level of quality that we're going to have with the final, but just not the mini. So we're, we just have to source those through our normal means. So I'm having my buddy Chuck make them for us. Oh, OK. So for that, just go through a, a 3D printer and find a friend who has a 3D printer and, and just do it that way. Or buy one and wrap your head around the technical end of prototyping <laughs> stuff. You know that we tried to do that. Um, and also, there's a company called Shapeways that can do 3D printing. Um, they are a tad bit; they're certainly more expensive than my pal Chuck, but um, they can get it done. And it really depends. You know, I've seen a, a number of different games uh, who are talking about including minis, or they have a bunch of stuff. Uh, something that comes to mind actually is uh, there's a game that was funded recently called The Goblin King Is Angry. And I can't remember the name of the creator, but he had a pretty lengthy conversation talking about the pros and cons of including cubes versus meeples versus minis versus custom printed meeples. Um, and he did end up doing, I think, uh, 
basic meeples within like an add-on where you can do custom printed ones. And yeah, I think, you know, what, what's at the crux of, of making that decision for a designer is like, are you, it's, it's just a whole nother basket of eggs when you start getting into minis, because it's not just about like looking at the, the art package in general for everything that'll just get printed with, uh, you know, all your printables, all your printed products with your board and cards and rule booklet and et cetera. Um, you, you basically have this entire separate workload of design around, you know, a three-dimensional object and then having in your hands, as, like I had mentioned before, for us, it was, it was um, very, very helpful and important for us to actually hold the prototypes in our hands and use them um, to really get a feel of how, how the game was going to play and sort of the experience from a player's perspective. Um, so yeah, for anybody who's trying to do minis in your game, like I feel for you, good luck. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly a little bit, a little bit more than, um, than doing like, you know, a card game or, a game that that utilizes uh, standees and stuff like that. Right. This is not something I would suggest anyone do for their first project. If I'm Uh-oh. not mistaken, this is your first project, <laughs> but uh, you, you didn't ask my opinion way back then. But yeah, for all the reasons you're talking about right now, there's just so many things involved and it's just a lot to wrap your, your arms around. Um, but if, the, if you do want to do a project like this, reach out to John DeCampos and uh, he'll, he'll kind of help you walk through the, the process. I mean, that's why we're doing this episode to hopefully help people figure out you know, how do I do this? If I want to do it, is it worth the effort? Is it worth the money? And that's, you know, hopefully going to give you all this information to be able to make that uh, decision. But um, John, is there anything else that anything we missed? Any question I haven't asked, you know, anything that came up in part of the process that you want to share? Um, You know, speaking to actually just getting getting the ball rolling on miniatures, if you are going to include those in your game, um, there is a, there, there are a lot of working freelance sculptors who are in the board game community who are ready to take that work. Um, I've had a couple approach me after looking at our stuff at playtests, and it, you know it's the same thing as when you hire an illustrator or you are looking for somebody to do some consultant work on your rule booklet or whatever else. Um, obviously, if you have the if you have the wherewithal and the determination to actually get your hands dirty and start DIYing that whole thing. Um, I, I have to say I got extremely, extremely lucky. I just happened to know two people who were interested in the project and had the resources and the knowledge to help me get it where it needed to go. Uh, not everybody will have that, but if you are thinking about doing minis, you know, go to the groups like board game, board game design lab or, um, you know, Kickstarter indie publishing, you know, there's all kinds of you know, Reddit groups and try to find that partner who can help you get over that last little bit. Um, you know, there's different ways to structure deals as, as you know, a lot of people experiment with a lot of different things. Um, but yeah, if you're, if you're dedicated to minis, like there's people who can help you get there for sure. And I'm one of them, you know, you can reach out to me and ask me, I can try to send you in the right direction with the limited knowledge that I have. Definitely. All right. Any closing thoughts? Somebody who's been listening to this episode or sitting there thinking, okay, I, I think I want to make it happen. I want to do it. What would you tell them? What kind of encouragement would you give them? I would say, oh my gosh, have fun, you know, going back to just thinking about what really makes me excited about working on these things is that I can kind of call myself a toy maker, which is sort of surreal to think about. Um, I I have imprinted these, these characters with little storylines and motivations, and um, I do have a lot of fun playtesting my game. I've played my game. So many times did I mention play testing? I've play tested this thing so many times and I still have a lot of fun with it because um, I can think about in the back of my brain how, you know, the goblins are really fascinated with figuring out a way to ride the wyvern. So I pair them together and I try to use a strategy uh, in my in my game that is complementary to sort of playing out these storylines and stuff. And, 
you know, if you can get passionate invested in the the artistic output side of your game and minis are important to you i say go for it uh hopefully you can just like find the right tools and the right knowledge to get you there awesome well we've been talking about this whole time but give me the uh like the two minute elevator pitch for your game on kickstarter right now token terrors battlegrounds um token terrors battlegrounds is a one versus one semi-abstract battle game um, where you are a warlord who is controlling 10 mini monsters in a battle to the death. Um, it is a seven by seven grid. Uh, the most truncated description I can give is that people say it is magic. The gathering meets chess. Um, I hope that doesn't intimidate anybody as both of those games are lauded as being very difficult to master. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, it, it's, it, it's actually been tough for me to nail down the, uh, the, the descriptor phrase. I've had people tell me it's a skirmish game, it's a strategy game, it's a semi-abstract, it's a war game. Um, it's kind of doing a lot of those things, but just on a much smaller scale. A game takes between 20 and 40 minutes. Um, there is definitely deep strategy to be had, but the rules, uh, you know, it usually takes about one game for the rule set to actually click. It's a combat system. Um, I think we've done a really good job balancing the uh, token talents, which are the special abilities that each faction has. Uh, so they all sort of adhere, adhere to one rule set involving how they fight and move. But each faction in Token Terrace has two special abilities that uh, can be commanded, each one once per turn. And they sort of give you a varying play style and can, I kind of liken it to kind of like easing into a character you really like in a fighting game. Like I really love uh, Lei Wu Long from Tekken. Uh, he's a five animal form Kung Fu master. Who's a cop from Hong Kong. And uh, for whatever reason, I just really like that character. And I think we sort of have something like that here. We have to explore each faction and then find a mechanic and play style that sort of suits your sensibilities and what you want to accomplish in a game. And then you can start to explore it and get into some really cool head to head battles with your buddies. Um, it, it does feel a little bit, uh, like very thought intensive sometimes, but I just try to have fun and attack as much as I possibly can when I play. Very cool. Well, John, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with token terrors of battlegrounds on Kickstarter and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Gabe, man, thank you so much for having me. I really uh, just can't thank you enough. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the board game design lab podcast is sponsored by quartermaster logistics the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?